This is the Read, Write, and Create podcast, the podcast where you get a bite-sized session of creative writing coaching from me, Lori L. Tharps. I'm an award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, a journalist, and a former college professor. I've spent more than 20 years writing, teaching, and coaching creative writers, and I created this podcast because I want to help as many BIPOC writers as possible get their stories out of their heads and into the world. Are you ready? Let's go. On today's episode of the podcast, I'm giving you a pep talk to encourage you to seize your moment to write so that you can leave a legacy of your words, your wisdom, your stories, and your dreams behind. Writing is such a powerful way to leave a legacy, as evidenced by all of the works we currently have to draw upon by our favorite literary ancestors. And speaking of literary ancestors, you know I'm going to tell you a story. Today's story is going to be about the life and times of Lorraine Hansberry, whose life work will help drive home my point. Are you ready for a pep talk and a story? All right then, let's do it. Hello, writers and wordsmiths. How is everybody? I hope you're all doing well and that your writing projects are flowing smoothly and you're feeling positive and productive these days. Before I go any further to tell you how I'm doing, I do want to apologize because there's some sort of massive pollen cloud in Spain right now where I am. I don't even have allergies and I am struggling to breathe properly. So if I sound like I've just climbed a mountain, that's the reason why. Anyway, moving on. I wanted to take this opportunity to thank everybody who has slid into my DMs on Instagram recently or posted on LinkedIn telling me how much you are enjoying this podcast. I am absolutely thrilled and touched and so happy to see that what I'm doing is inspiring you and your work. So I just wanted to say thank you for those of you who are doing that And it just gives me more motivation to keep putting out this podcast and making it the best podcast as possible. So thank you. Now, as far as my writing, how's that going? Well, I told you last time that I finally turned in my manuscript for that last collaboration project I was working on. So now I am finally able to get back to finishing my novel. Yes, this is the novel I've been working on for years Yes, years, people. It is my most ambitious fiction project to date. I really hope that I can pull this off. But to be honest, (laughs) I have put this book aside many times, for months at a time, actually, and just let it sit in my proverbial drawer, promising to come back to it, but also thinking, maybe this book is just too hard for me. Maybe it's above my pay grade as a writer. The main character in the story is a full-grown man. The voice of God shows up throughout the story. And, you know, it's just a story that has a lot of layers to it. It's very ambitious. And I often just want to, like, throw it away and say that I can't do it. I can't do it. But something inside of me knows that this book must be written. It's a calling. Like, I know that I have to do it. I have to get it done. I have to get it out into the world because it could be my greatest legacy. So I'm pulling up Phyllis Wheatley and I'm getting up early and making the time to write before the sun comes up. 
I'm taking Toni Morrison's advice to heart to write what fascinates me instead of just what I know. And I am totally channeling Octavia Butler and not giving up, even though it's taking me years to get this manuscript right. Again, I'm doing this because I want to leave a lasting legacy of work behind. I want people to remember me for these ambitious stories that I want to tell and for the messages that I want to get out there. So again, people will remember the stories even when I'm dead and gone. So I don't want this to be like a depressing episode and I don't want you guys to be fixated on your own mortality, but I want you to keep it top of mind that our words, our stories, our books, our essays can outlast us. They can outlive us. So it's important to realize that when we're writing for publication, that our literary output will be in the world much longer than we can. And that should inspire us. It should motivate us to get to work. So let me tell you how this correlates to the life and times of Miss Lorraine Hansberry. Lorraine Vivian Hansberry was a writer and a racial justice activist. She was born on May 19, 1930 in Chicago. She was the youngest of four children. Her father, Carl Hansberry, was a successful real estate agent, and her mother, Nanny, was a teacher. Her family lived a fairly comfortable middle-class existence on the south side of Chicago during Lorraine's childhood. Now, because her parents were community activists and they were heavily engaged with the NAACP, a lot of famous African Americans passed through their home as invited guests during Lorraine's childhood. So she was hobnobbing, if you will, with the likes of W.E.B. Du Bois, Langston Hughes, Paul Robeson, Duke Ellington, Olympic gold medalist Jesse Owens, you know, just folks like that. All of that to say that Lorraine was introduced to the idea of community activism, racial justice work from a very early age. However, when she was just eight years old, an incident happened in her life that would shape her politics, her career, and her literary legacy. What happened is Lorraine's parents decided to move into an all-white neighborhood. They bought a house legally and normally as one would when they want to, quote-unquote, move up in the world. However, this neighborhood had what was considered a restrictive policy that the neighbors had created. They called it a restrictive covenant. That was the official term. Anyway, this restrictive covenant basically was like, we don't want any black people in our neighborhood. And the Hansberry family moved in anyway. And the white people in the neighborhood were like, get out. We don't want you here. They did all the awful, terrible, nasty things, throwing things at the children when they went to school, being rude and eventually resorted to mob violence, threw a brick through their living room window, narrowly missing little Lorraine at the time, the white neighbors took their case to court, and the court upheld their ridiculous covenant and forced Lorraine's family to leave the house that they bought with their own money. Now, this led to a series of law cases back and forth. The Hansberry sued. It was in the courts for years. 
Eventually, though, the United States Supreme Court did side with the Hansberry family, saying that they had the right to live in that house. But it was like a little too little too late at that point, particularly for Lorraine's father, Carl, who was just devastated by this whole experience. Apparently, he wanted to move their family out of the United States. He was like, I'm done with all of this and tried to get the family to move to Mexico, meaning he started the process and was going to Mexico, researching things. But unfortunately, he never got to see his plans come to fruition. He died at age 50 unexpectedly of a cerebral hemorrhage when Lorraine was only 15 years old. It was almost as if the stress and injustice of everything that he had been trying to do with his life, improving the life for his family, was too much. So remember that story because it's going to come up again. Anyway, after the death of her father, Lorraine continued on with her schooling. She was in high school at the time. She went to high school in Chicago, and it was actually in high school where Lorraine first became interested in theater. After high school, she went to my home state of Wisconsin. She went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison to study writing, but she left after two years and actually decided to take up painting. And she went to Chicago and then Mexico to study painting. Finally, when she was about 20 years old, Lorraine made her way to New York, where all the writers go, where all the cool kids go, of course, and started officially her career as a writer. Her first writing job was for Paul Robeson's progressive newspaper called Freedom. And while she worked there, she was in contact and in conversation with many literary and political greats, again, working with W.B. Du Bois, with Paul Robeson himself. She worked there as a writer and an associate editor for about three years. But this is New York. This is Black America. This is America, period. And she wasn't making enough money to support herself just working as a journalist there, as a writer and editor. So she also had several part-time jobs working as a waitress and a cashier. But whenever she had a spare moment, she was writing. Around this time when she was in New York in her early 20s, she was at a protest demonstrating in New York. And she met her future husband, a white Jewish man named Robert Nimeroff. They really connected over their shared political views. They were both writers, and they got married in 1953 in a quiet ceremony at Lorraine's home in Chicago. Now, despite the fact that she married Robert, Hansberry identified as a lesbian, but the times, you know, were not open to Black women. I was about to say as to Black women being lesbians, but come on, they were not really open to anybody being a lesbian. So she had to live a very closeted life as a lesbian for a long period, or I guess I'd say it was her choice to live a closeted life, although she did write for lesbian publications and she did advocate for women in this way, but she did it under a pen name. Anyway, She and her husband were living as man and wife, and in 1956, her husband wrote a song called Cindy O' Cindy, and everybody talks about the popular song Cindy O' Cindy. Quite frankly, I've never heard of it. Even when I heard it, I was like, oh, yeah, that song. No, never heard of it. But regardless, it did so well. The profits were so high that Lorraine was able to quit all of her little side gigs and just concentrate on her writing. And it was at that time when the magic happened. That's when she was freed up to do what she wanted to do that she started to write her play, A Raisin in the Sun. Now, I'm sure everybody recognizes that title because it is her most famous work, 
And the title, A Raisin in the Sun, comes from the Langston Hughes poem titled Harlem, A Dream Deferred. I'm going to read the poem for you because it's really short. But when you hear the poem, you will understand how significant this work was. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? It's very obvious. I mean, there's no denial of it. Lorraine Hansberry never denied it, that A Raisin in the Sun was very much inspired by her own experiences when she was eight years old integrating that neighborhood. The basic storyline of A Raisin in the Sun is that there is a working class black family living in Chicago and they inherit some money. And the central polemic in the story is what to do with this money. One of the options is to use the money as a down payment for a house that the family can all live in. And the house is in an all white neighborhood where the white neighbors don't want them to go. So again, that experience that Lorraine lived through that ultimately probably drove her father to a place of great depression and sorrow was what moved Lorraine to continuously explore this idea and that scenario and what could have happened, why did it happen, etc. So Raisin in the Sun opened on Broadway at the Barrymore Theater on March 11th, 1959, the play starred such famous actors as Sidney Poitier, Louis Gossett, Ruby Dee, and Ozzie Davis, just to name a few. When that play launched, it made Lorraine Hansberry the first Black American woman to have a play staged on Broadway. And the play was an immediate success. Critics were raving about it. It ran for 19 months the play was nominated for four Tony Awards. It won the New York Drama Critics Circle Award for Best Play the year it came out, making Hansberry also the youngest and first Black playwright to win that award as well. Now, we're talking legacy people, right? Within two years, A Raisin in the Sun was translated into 35 different languages and was performed all over the world. Hello, 35 different languages. I'm going to read you a quote Never before in the entire history of the American theater had so much of the truth of Black people's lives been seen on the stage. You know who said that? James Baldwin. And actually, he and Lorraine Hansberry were quite good friends. So that comment really personified why this play was so significant. Now, in 1964... Lorraine's second play premiered on Broadway. It was called The Sign in Sidney Brustein's Window. It also opened on Broadway, but to mixed reviews, it wasn't the big hit that A Raisin in the Sun was. However, it ran for 101 performances. Unfortunately, most of those performances occurred while Lorraine was in hospital dying of cancer. Now, before she died, Lorraine made one more important performance, if you will. And that was a speech that she gave to a group of young Black writers who had won a United Negro Fund writing competition. So apparently she had already been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She was quite ill, but she still made it to this award ceremony because she wanted to deliver this important speech. 
the part of her speech that is so often remembered and replayed and repeated is this. Even though it is a thrilling and marvelous thing to be merely young and gifted in such times, it is doubly so, doubly dynamic to be young, gifted, and Black. On January 12, 1965, Lorraine Hansberry died of pancreatic cancer. She was 34 years old. Hansberry's unpublished writing speeches and journal entries were collected by her former husband and published as her autobiography titled To Be Young, Gifted, and Black. Now, it's funny because a lot of people might not have seen A Raisin in the Sun, but they know that term, To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, possibly because Nina Simone wrote the song, Young, Gifted, and Black, But many people might not realize that she wrote that song for Lorraine Hansberry, who was her good friend. In fact, Lorraine Hansberry is the godmother of Nina Simone's daughter. So to be young, gifted, and Black, it was a speech that Lorraine Hansberry gave, but it perfectly exemplifies or personifies Lorraine Hansberry herself. So let's talk about her legacy. A Raisin in the Sun was not Lorraine's only play, as we know, but it is definitely her most well-known, and it has far outlived Lorraine, whose premature death denied us the opportunity to see what else she could have produced. Still, A Raisin in the Sun went far beyond making Lorraine Hansberry famous as a playwright, although it did that. I mean, it really did. Before she died, Lorraine saw A Raisin in the Sun receive rave views. She saw it staged in London's West End. She saw it turned into a Hollywood movie, which she wrote the screenplay for. So yes, in her short life, Lorraine Hansberry was famous. She was on TV shows and radio shows. She was courted for her opinion on many current events. She met with politicians and studio execs to share her thoughts. So A Raisin in the Sun definitely propelled her into, you know, the famous people, the important people stratosphere. But beyond her personal experiences, let's talk about legacy. A Raisin in the Sun is considered one of the most important American stage plays, and it has continued to find new audiences throughout the decades. Think about this. The play has generated Emmy-nominated television productions in both 1989 and 2008. The play has earned accolades from Broadway. It's won new Tony Awards for revivals of the productions. It won a Tony Award in 2004 and 2014, including Best Revival of a Play. So again, Miss Lorraine Hansberry left this earthly plane in 1965. Meanwhile, her work is winning awards in 2014. So beyond what it's doing for the theater world, let's talk about the legacy. A Raisin in the Sun opened the doors of Broadway for all Black playwrights who previously had been denied the opportunity to see their shows on Broadway. I think even more importantly is that A Raisin in the Sun opened the door to Black audiences who previously had never seen their lives, their stories put on Broadway. There's a reason why Broadway is known as the Great White Way. (laughs) Yeah. So Lorraine's work opened those doors. And what people really talk about A Raisin in the Sun, you know, they're not just like, oh, it was such a great play. They talk about its universal appeal. They talk about the fact that this play was the first time that white theater goers and white critics were saying, huh, 
this play that starred black people had a universal story that I could connect with. And it seems that black people are just like you and me, where you and me is white, middle America, right? While this was something that kind of rubbed Lorraine the wrong way because some people wanted to remove the blackness from the play by giving that backhanded compliment that this was a play that just happened to feature black characters, the point is that it did allow people to start seeing black stories as universal stories. She opened that door not just for theater goers, but for all storytellers. So what's the takeaway for you from Lorraine's story? One, start writing and keep writing. Lorraine was always writing. She wrote essays, newspaper articles, and her plays. And when she was given the freedom and the luxury of time, she wrote even more. Two, our stories can be incredibly personal and yet simultaneously universal. That means go ahead and tell your Black stories or your Latino stories or your Asian American stories or your Indigenous stories. Our stories, our personal stories can still be seen and appreciated and loved by a global audience. And even more importantly, our stories can move the needle forward towards justice, even when the law, politics, and street protests or other forms of protests cannot. I would say that A Raisin in the Sun got more people to talk about housing discrimination and white mob violence and restrictive segregation policies than the legal cases that actually fought down those policies. So yeah, tell your stories. Number three, imagine what the effects of your stories could be for yourself, your community, your country, and the world. Number four, your stories will outlive you. So write what matters to you. Lorraine Hansberry cared about social justice, the rights of Black people, and freedom from oppressive ideologies. So she incorporated those ideas into her work. And now, as A Raisin in the Sun is being produced on a stage somewhere in the world, probably as we speak, we will continue to talk about the issues that she cared about the most. So... If your stories are going to outlive you, what do you want people to continue to talk about even after you're gone? And finally, seize the moment and write now. Write what you can, when you can. Don't wait. I'm going to end this story about Lorraine Hansberry with her own words that she wrote in her journal as she lay in her hospital bed. She wrote, The writing urge is on. Only death or infirmity can stop me now. Lorraine Hansberry. I hope this coaching session has left you inspired and motivated to write. I hope you feel a deeper connection and commitment to your literary projects and practice. I want you to remember, if nothing else, that your stories are your legacy. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's 
pep talk and story. I want to catch you up on what's happening in the Read, Write, and Create community. Don't forget, I am hosting a one-day intensive workshop on Sunday, May 7th on how to write a nonfiction book proposal. This workshop is open to any and all writers working on a nonfiction book, including memoir. Yes, you have to write a proposal even if you're writing a memoir. If you want to sell a nonfiction book to a mainstream publisher, even to an academic publisher, you have to write a proposal first. You need a proposal also to get an agent. And the proposal is also going to be used to get that book deal with publishers. So if you already have a good idea of what your nonfiction book is going to be, if you already have a couple of chapters written, this is the time that you need to be thinking about getting that proposal done. So register for my workshop because you'll leave the workshop with a template and a working outline for your proposal. I'll leave a link in the show notes to register. If you have any questions, just slide into my DMs on Instagram and let me know what your question is. Next, if you haven't already, you should sign up for the Read, Write, and Create newsletter so you'll be the first to know about all of my upcoming workshops, classes, and retreats, as well as other writing opportunities that I share, including writing contests and calls for work from presses all over the world. I'll leave a link to sign up for the newsletter in the show notes as well. If you're looking for more creative writing inspiration, writing prompts, and useful resources for your literary life, be sure to check out all of the amazing content on the Read, Write, and Create website. That's at readwriteandcreate.com. Most recently, I included a itinerary for literary Marrakesh. So if you're planning a trip this summer, perhaps, or maybe in the fall, and you're thinking about Morocco, check out that itinerary to get some ideas about some of the cool literary things you might find there in the Red City. Finally, if you know any BIPOC writers who might need a creative pep talk, please share this show with them. You can share it online. You can share it in real life. You can talk about this podcast at your job, at your church, with your friends. I don't care. I just want as many people as possible who need to know about this show to find the show. Thank you. I'll be back in two weeks on Monday. Until then, keep writing.